Welcome back to Helping Teachers Thrive. In this episode, I'm thrilled to have Tom Hopkins-Burke, a distinguished host from Teachers Talk Radio, joining me today. Together, we explore the ever-changing landscape in schools and effective strategies that we can use to support our students in lessons. Drawing from his experience as a teacher, Tom brings invaluable insights for new and seasoned teachers. I hope you enjoy the episode and please don't forget to hit follow. Tom, what changes do you believe the education system needs to better support our teachers? I think what changes does the system need? I think the changes that the system needs are probably not going to come around because there's no political will for it. And the problem is, you know, speaking to all of the teachers that we do on Teachers Talk Radio, we talk about all of the things that sort of we want and the things that we need. Um, but we just think it's very unlikely that the things are going to come about. But ultimately, 9% of your teachers left the profession last summer before retirement, a um, huge number, and it's going to get bigger this summer, I can imagine. So what changes do we need to the system? Number one, more PPA. Now, we have an interesting divide on Teachers Talk Radio between our secondary teachers and our primary teachers. And, you know, we, you know, the secondary teachers, whenever we say, let's have a PPA a day, the primary teachers go and say, a PPA a day, what on earth are you talking about? So we get an <laughs> afternoon if we're lucky. Um, but certainly from a secondary perspective, um, you know, teachers, if they're lucky, get 10%. No, all teachers get 10% PPA. If they're lucky, they get more. And... That means if you're teaching 50 hours a fortnight, you might get five hours a fortnight off to do planning, preparation, assessment. And that all, mm. what that means is the education profession, the teaching profession is built on unpaid overtime and it's an unsustainable system and teachers do it out of goodwill. But since the goodwill disappears because they might have had a bad experience of work, they're less likely to put the work in. And who's going to suffer? Well, it's the teachers first and foremost because it's one of those jobs where you can only do your job if you put in the extra hours and mm. you, otherwise you're going to turn it to a classroom with nothing to teach and it's going to be an absolute nightmare so more ppa is what's required um that would look different in primary and secondary i imagine um and then sort of sort of a wider reputational improvement for teachers and the teaching profession as well. We've seen in the last 12 months that actually the public perception of teachers has improved um, during the strike action um, last year. Um, we actually saw that the public were more sympathetic towards teachers. And that's something which really came across on Teachers Talk Creative as well. When we spoke to people who weren't teachers actually saying, well, I didn't realise how tough it was to be a teacher. And that's come about not just in the short term from that strike action, but also in sort of a medium term during the pandemic as well, when so many parents are educating their children at home and realise I'm finding it so hard to teach maybe one or two children or maybe three children. Imagine how teachers do trying to teach 30 children five hours a day, 25 hours a week. So there is that sense as well, I think, you know, but it's an ongoing process and that you know the public and the teachers they aren't quite there yet and there are still some people who think well teachers get 13 weeks holiday and they leave at half three yeah. every day <laughs> and until that changes the government's very happy you know whichever political party will be in the government of the next election plus the government at the moment they're very happy for that public perception to remain because the vote winners on education are not for teachers but they're to get parents on board um, yes but until that public perception changes for good you're still going to have teacher shortages um issues with retention issues with recruitment and so yeah that, those are the two big things that need to change but i don't see them changing anytime soon unfortunately no and that's that also has a big impact doesn't it on teachers well-being and the risk of burnout for teachers so what is your experience of um teacher burnout have you ever come across that in your career have you felt i mean there, there are some there are some days much? where i finish teaching it might be a five period day it might be um, mm. a day of a parents even so and i think how on earth can i go to work tomorrow um but you just you know you have to wake up and you have to start again that you mm. know and mm. it shouldn't be that way teaching should be something that teachers enjoy and shouldn't burn out but you know i've seen colleagues in my own school burnout i've seen um, peers and friends in other schools burnout um it's not a phenomenon which is unique to a particular setting or a particular type of person um it's something which affects all teachers feelings of burnout feelings that actually they can't go on and what teachers need to realize is if they didn't turn up to work 
that school would probably get somebody to do their job within a week. And teachers have to realise that the most important thing is looking after themselves, looking after their families, look, you know, making time for themselves, because they can give so much to their employer, but ultimately if anything were to happen to them, the employer would get somebody in to do their job. So that's why I'd say on burnout, it happens. Look after yourself, take time out for yourself and realise nobody's more, you know, nobody's less important. I've tried to work out the words now. Um, the job's not that important in the grand scheme of things. The person is far more important than the job. Of course, yeah. And how we present ourselves in schools will have an impact on our learning environment, will have an impact on our students. But I think the reason that we give so much to our profession is because we care so much. That's why we became teachers. We want to help children better themselves and achieve great things. And because we have that sense of sort of care and empathy towards our students, we want them to succeed. And Sometimes we can feel guilty for not being in school, for example. We go in when we're ill and we're not feeling very well. But you're right, we need to put ourselves first and look after our own well-being first so that we can then better support our students and be better role models for them because they're watching us every day, day in, day out, and seeing how we're coping with things or how we're mm. dealing with things. Indeed. And actually, I, you know, I think about my own experience as a teacher and I think about you know, I had to give up my form at the end of year nine because I took on an increased responsibility. But there's a kid in my old form who's now in year 11, who I met at the start of year seven. And for various reasons, I'm pretty much the only male role model in his life. And that's really tough to have that weight of responsibility on your shoulder in terms of actually the kids look up to you. And they look at you as an example, as a role model. And many of the students we teach in schools across the country, they don't have many role models in their lives. They don't have people who they can look up to and go, oh, I want to be like them. And actually, it's the teachers they come across who are the closest to being those role models that is possible. And in terms of what this means for social mobility, in terms of what this means for sort of raising aspirations and raising achievements, it's quite worrying. And it's hard to sometimes really it's hard for it to sink in really that actually we are the adults who make a big difference because if as because sometimes you just think i'm doing my job you know i'm going to work i'm getting paid but actually the number of young people we come across in a working day or a working week or a working year we really are people who young people look up to we are those role, role models and that is quite daunting it is indeed, and especially because some some of these children they don't they see their parents as much, and that's not their parents' fault. They're working hard trying to provide um, standard of living for their children. So sometimes we're the ones that they see more mm. for longer periods of time, day to day, and even during holidays when their parents are working, they're at home. It can be really difficult for them. But again, it's it's just unfortunately is how life is at the minute with parents working really really hard to try and provide for their children. Mm. We we are we are in loco parentis. We are you know if you think about how often kids are at school in a day they're in at 8 45 or out at half three that is the bulk of their day they might see their parents in the morning if they you know if they're lucky they will probably see them when they come back after school but actually the bulk of their day the bulk of their week is spent in school with adults who aren't their parents or their guardians or their carers mm -hmm. and we have to be the role models for them and we have to sort of present ourselves yes as authority figures and people who they need to respect and people who they need to follow and look up to but also those wider figures of sort of inspiration and aspiration and mm -hmm. you know presenting to them actually what it means to be an adult and what it means to sort of grow up 100 percent. now i saw um i listened to an episode of teachers talk radio a while back about how behavior has changed from how we used to behave or how what behavior was like back in the day when I was growing up compared to now. So let me give you an example. For example, I remember standing up when a member of staff walked into the classroom. The whole class stood up. Didn't matter who it was. Could be anybody walking into the room. And you wait till, till they said, good morning, good afternoon. You responded. And then when they said, please sit down, we all sat down. Now, obviously I can't talk generally about every school. I don't know if that still happens, but what do you think changed in terms of I think I know what episode behavior. you're talking about. I think oh, <laughs> it'll be the 7th of February. It'll be Michelle Hines for Twilight Show. Um, 
you feel free to carry on testing me. I, I'll, ah, that's very good, good memory. <laughs> um, but yeah, what behaviour has how's it changed? There's been all all sorts of factors that have mm. um, played a role, and it's not just the pandemic, but it is oh, yeah. the pandemic, and mm. particularly when we look at school attendance and we look at rates of absence and persistent absence in many families and for many children school is now seen as optional Mm. and that's because they spent the best part of March till July 2020 and then January to March 2021 in their rooms in their houses in self-isolation perhaps engaging with the curriculum with what schools are offering remotely perhaps not for whatever reason and the bond between schools and children and parents has broken down as a result of that it hasn't in every case but what we have seen now um, in every school in the country I'd go far so far as to say is we've seen a widening of that disadvantage gap as a result of a pandemic because if we look at the children who are not engaging with school for whatever reason, and we're looking at the children who are still engaging with school, there is a correlation there in terms of levels of prior attainment, in terms of parental background, parental income, in terms of experiences of the pandemic. And of course, yes, the pandemic, people said it was a social level. It wasn't. It affected people in different ways, very different ways. And if you didn't have much at home, the pandemic was a really tough time. If you're fortunate enough to come from an affluent middle class background um, and, you know, and you've got plenty of space at home, maybe your own bedroom as a child, um, you would have had a more positive or less negative experience of that pandemic. Um, But for so many of our children who we teach, the most disadvantaged students, Mm -hmm. lockdown was hell. And... There was no way they could do any work if they didn't have an internet connection. I teach students at the moment and I say, you know, and they say to me, sir, we don't have a computer at home. Mm-hmm. I don't even have a mobile phone that I can use. I have to use my parents if I want to do that. You know, I, a couple of kids, no internet. Um, and so that equity of access to education has broken down because of a pandemic, that bond between schools and parents and children broke down and it hasn't been repaired yet so the pandemic's one reason why we're in that position um what more widely i suppose and i've I've got no idea why this is but there just there has been a breakdown uh, in terms of i don't know how to put it in terms of sort of manners we had a show on manners very recently um you know but in terms of sort of how you know, the norms and the routines and things like that within schools, it all seems to have broken down. Speak to any teacher and ask them to compare behaviour in their school with behaviour five years ago. They'll all say it's got worse. But it does seem to be historically a bit of a trend where, you know, teachers in any period will say behaviour is now worse than it was before. Uh, But Mm. it does seem to be far more universal now. How can we put the finger on it a pandemic is one reason but it can't be the only reason and so the big challenge for education i think is in the next five ten years to really rebuild those relationships between schools and the wider community and schools and parents um in order you know in order to provide the best thing for their children so do you think also that the unpaid working hours well the unpaid overtime let's say on staff and the over the workload and the stress of the career that's had an impact on the students behavior so if we if we focus on of staff well-being improving staff well-being across schools then that could create a more positive culture in schools where teachers feel happy to go to work and they feel safe and supported which would then they that would reflect on our students in terms of how we behave and interact with one another and with our students students can see if they're teachers mm. are stressed or unhappy or tired yeah. and that does have an effect on them the other thing of course to notice of course levels of staff absence mm-hmm. uh, and we see stories in the media about a kid who's had 40 different science teachers in a year or something because they can't get 
permanent teachers. If you look on all of your sort of job websites in terms of finding teacher jobs, they're through the roof for a number of advertisements and the number of repeat adverts you see for teachers of maths, teachers of science, teachers of English. You know, schools are really struggling to appoint English teachers nowadays. Um, and of course, all subjects as well. I know of a, there's a Catholic school near me which can't recruit an RE teacher, and that's a Catholic school. Um, so levels of staff absence and the lack of sort of consistency and the lack of uniformity within schools where there's an increase in supply of teachers and that means an increase in costs for school because agencies are so expensive um, that of course it has a knock-on effect and it makes it harder for the more established teachers when mm. they've got students who maybe for the first four lessons of their day have had supply and then turn at period five and it's their established teacher who's yes. going to try <laughs> to get those routines back it's really really hard and some schools you know schools have all been hit hard by this some schools harder than others and I think a lot of that as well depends on the area of the country these schools are in if you're a school in a more affluent area you're less likely to have been hit by higher levels of staff absence and you know in terms of that aspect as well so you still would have been hit by it, but not as much whereas if you're in a school which serves a particularly disadvantaged area you're more likely to have been hit by those high levels of staff absence and the inability to recruit staff and what that does is it creates this sort of knock-on effect whereby the students who are already least advantaged in terms of their background become more disadvantaged as we go through mm. because of the effects of a wide sort of these wider contributing factors are having on their schooling and on their education. So how do you meet the needs of your diverse students in your class? So for example, you may have a student who um, doesn't have access to a laptop at home and everything is uploaded onto Google Classroom. How do you, what do you do in terms of the strategies you implement to support your students regardless of their needs or their backgrounds? It's really hard to do that. And any teacher who's listening to you is thinking, I've got X amount of students and I've got students who need this. I've got students who need that. I've got students who need um, this. It's hard. Mm. It is really, really hard to meet the needs of all of your students, considering how little time teachers get to plan and mark and you know how much time they're spending in the classroom which is by far the best part of teaching being in the classroom with students it is really hard and sometimes we have a legal obligation as in we must legally meet the needs of our students these are the students with ehcps and they're reviewed annually and teachers are legally obligated to meet the provisions in the ehcps um, other sort of SEN diagnoses as well. Teachers have an obligation to meet particular needs and to sort of adapt their teaching accordingly. And the key thing is now within the world of teaching, and this will probably change in five years' time, we're no longer talking about differentiation. No. We're now talking about adaptive <laughs> teaching and what adaptive teaching is. And it's the idea that you shouldn't be giving different tasks to different students based on levels of prior attainment, but you should be making precise adaptations to your teaching, both pre-planned adaptations and proactive, reactive adaptations mm -hmm. in the classroom in order to meet the needs of your students whether these are students who might be dyslexic for example or students with a lower level of prior attainment or students who might have ADHD or ASD in terms of putting those adaptations into place so the key thing for teachers in terms of meeting the needs of their students is what are the things that be, can be done quite quickly in terms of a lesson in terms of a unit in order to meet those needs so if you have students who are dyslexic for example thinking about how you can adjust reading materials i'm a history mm. teacher students in my classrooms do a lot of reading thinking about line spacing thinking about including line numbers thinking about how we use dyslexic friendly fonts thinking about how we might print paper on different colors because even though most of it's a placebo effect for some students they say it generally helps um but if you're doing that for that student, you may as well do it for all of your other students as well. If you've been told this student needs blue paper, why not print all of your reading on blue paper? Yes, of course. Because 
rather than having to do 29 copies on white and one copy on blue, doing all 30 on blue every week, it's just, it's just thinking smarter. And that's what it is about. Um, if you're going to say, if you know there's a student in your classroom who struggles with extended writing and you provide them a writing frame to help structure their writing, why not give the writing frame to some of the other students as well? Because they might need it as well. You might not be told they need it, but you may as well mm. provide that adaptation, that scaffold to them. Modeling is a great example. Some students need to understand sort of what a good example of something looks like. So rather than giving it to the student or students who you've been told to give it for, Give it to everybody, because what is sort of good adaptive teaching for some is good teaching for all. And so when we talk about meeting the needs of our students, we need to think about what are those things that we can do, which won't just help the targeted students, but will help every student as well. Just hearing you um, talk about that, it just reminded me of things that I've done, actually, in my teaching career. So I've pretty much done what you've said. So I give it to all my students. I don't want my students to stand out. I don't want them to look like the odd one out and make them feel uncomfortable. So I always say it's available there if you need it, have a look at it, use it. But I also try and push them and say, well, try try not to use it to begin with. Have a go. And if you need to use it, fine. Have a, Then you can use it. It's not an issue. It's there for you. So, yeah, I completely agree with you 100%. Give it to all our students so that we're not creating 20 different lessons in one because we're not supposed to be doing that anymore. Um, and it's just there in case they need it. We're not just specifically targeting one student in the whole class. Now, in your role as literacy coordinator, what sort of initiatives have you put in place to help enhance literacy among your students? I think about some of the roles in schools which most teachers don't really care about. Mm. Literacy <laughs> is one of them. Careers tends to be another one where you're being told, oh, you need to link this lesson to careers. And we go, mm. I've got 5,000 other things I need to do. That's the last thing I want to do at the moment. Um, numeracy tends to be another one although schools are focusing less on numeracy now um but yeah li literacy tends to be one of those things where if you say literacy to a teacher they go oh, i can't be bothered with that but every teacher is a teacher of literacy and so it's important i mean if you to go through every single literacy initiative we'd be here all day <laughs> um but let's, start, let's, start, let's start with the most important ones in my yeah. view so ultimately with any intervention you have three tiers you have sort of your quality first teaching which is at the top you then have your sort of smaller intervention and then you have your one-on-one -on -one, um, targeted specific interventions so if you start with literacy at the very top in terms of quality first teaching it's really important that all students in your school are are exposed to a high quality rich um, diet of literacy and this includes access to rich vocabulary which will now enable them to access a curriculum um, the opportunity to engage in structured talk opportunities or oracy the ability to write with confidence and then later on with flair um, and so having those, that sort of vision as a school of quality first teaching is really really important so from our school's perspective we focus really really hard on what it means to read well and how we can support our students to read well in the classroom so using evidence-informed strategies like activating background knowledge um, by summarizing by clarifying by predicting when we're reading for comprehension allows students to have a much greater understanding of texts that they encounter um, linked to that is um, how we teach vocabulary explicitly in our classrooms um, so building staff awareness of the different tiers of vocabulary so you've got tier one vocabulary which is sort of common everyday language tier two vocabulary which is academic vocabulary which is used across disciplines and then tier three vocabulary um, which is the subject specific vocabulary which only really belongs within one discipline or one subset of disciplines mm. and it's not hierarchy it's just a way of organising vocabulary in terms of which vocabulary we should be teaching explicitly. And then having strategies to teach that vocabulary explicitly. So it might be using a Freya model to provide a definition, some examples of word in practice. Um, it might be about exploring etymology, where that's useful, morphology, where that's useful. And rather than teaching lots of different words, teaching lots of prefixes or suffixes in particular subjects, because if you know that 
demos at the front of a word means people and you know that democracy means power by the people um you know that demo de oh, i'm trying to think a demagogue is somebody who you know who appeal tries to appeal to people through their speech and through their propaganda etc so that's really powerful so that's sort of your quality first thinking about literacy you then have students for whom you'll do you doing fantastic teaching in the classroom, but they're still not able to access the curriculum. At that point, you've got to think, what can we offer those students beyond what is taught in the classroom to allow them to access a curriculum? And so in our school, we essentially have three tiers of that intervention. So our bottom tier, so to speak, is our phonics intervention, where we identify students who, even though they've got to year seven, year eight, year nine, they might be 14 years old, but they still don't have that phonemic awareness of the English language and they still can't sound out particular sounds. And we're very fortunate we have a trained phonics specialist, key stage, former Key Stage 1 teacher, working in our school with those most vulnerable students in terms of their reading in order to plug gaps in, the code, in their phonemic code and in order to then basically give them what's missing in order for them to actually go into classrooms and being able to read decode what is in front of them so that's that level we also have this a reading fluency and comprehension intervention where we use online software um, and we sort of track students engagement with that in terms of how well can they answer comprehension questions how quickly can they read with accuracy um, and so we do that with about 30 year sevens. And then beyond that, slightly above that, we have for the students who are okay with comprehension, um, but are struggling to read sort of fluently and be um, fully mm. proficient and fluent readers. We have a reading buddies intervention whereby they are supported by some of our sick formers um, by reading to those sick formers and just practicing reading aloud and then answering questions based on what they've just read as a way of sort of building that confidence and giving them a role model, somebody to look up to mm. um, and building their confidence because they're more confident reading as part of that. They'll be more confident reading either to themselves or aloud in their classrooms as well. So it's really important with any form of literacy intervention in terms of sort of raising awareness of that, it's really important that you target the right thing at a particular student. You might have a student who really struggles with comprehension or fluency, they don't need a phonics intervention if they can decode those words they need something else alternatively if you have a student who can't read certain sounds in the english language there's no point putting them on a comprehension intervention if they can't actually read what it is they're meant to be comprehending so know your students oh, know yeah. exactly what they need and that helps to meet the needs of every student and that's what a literacy coordinator does pretty much <laughs> that's brilliant do you have um, reading sessions every day because there are some student schools that have a reading session every single day where the students will sit and read and like you said about your the sixth formers role modeling that and reading with students i think that's brilliant because some students will go home they won't have anybody to read to like i said because parents are so busy or they've got siblings that they've got little younger siblings that they're taking care of maybe so a lot there are schools out there that do have daily reading sessions don't they yeah so yeah they're not so we they our sessions run every day but mm. it's not the same students every day because we want to hit as many students as possible. So typically, if say a reading buddy session with a sick form, is our, some of our younger year seven and eight students will be accessing that once a week um, during registration time. And it's really hard to get kids out of registration because, you know, we deliver PSHE free registration quite a lot. We've got assemblies and things like that as well. So it's a real challenge. But I go, well, if they can't read by the time they're in year 10 starting their GCSEs then they're not going to get the outcomes they want they're not going to get the qualifications and it's going to stop them from getting to their next steps so it's about realizing what's best for the students which is essentially what the, our entire rationale for tackling literacy very early on especially post-pandemic as well um, with some of the other interventions phonics we tried you know best practice with phonics especially in secondary schools is that students have access to phonics interventions every single day it's really hard mm -hmm. in a packed timetable to be able to do that because students have to access their broad and balanced curriculum as well but at the same time they can't access that broad and balanced curriculum if they can't read so course, phonics yeah. has to trump everything else um, in order to get those students into those classrooms as soon as possible but also equipped with the knowledge they need to be able to access the curriculum so every literacy coordinator in every school would be able to say we'd love to deliver more there are so many competing pressures with pshe with the formal curriculum with assemblies and with sort of a wider curriculum as well um, so we try to do the very best with what we have 
I think it's also important for staff to be trained, isn't it? Because I currently teach in a special needs school and I deliver read write ink sessions. I never did read write ink before in a mainstream setting, but now that I'm doing that with my students, just three or four times a week, when I'm teaching English, for example, I'm thinking about the blending and I'm encouraging the students to blend more and I'm I'm thinking more down that route rather than mm. I just think, well, let's just read this together. But now I, I know better in terms of how to blend sounds. I didn't know that before. I was a PE teacher mm. for 13 years. So the fact that I've now had the opportunity to teach Read, Write, Ink and be able to yeah. encourage my students to blend is incredible. It's really hard with staff training because yeah. you know, I work <laughs> in a school which is year seven to year 13. And if you're delivering whole staff training on blending and segmenting, mm. you're going to have teachers there who only teach sixth form who think, well, why on earth do I need to know <laughs> course, this? Yeah. Um, and then if you have sort of you know training on sort of more you know because obviously literally it's not just about those who are struggling to read but also stretching and challenging those who are the most able as well and you might mm. have some of those and then you've got maybe a teacher who teaches nurture groups who goes well it's not really suited to me and mm. it's really hard because there are all sorts of competing CPD um, challenges within a school. You've got to ensure you have the backing of your leadership team if you're going to provide staff training on literacy, uh, because if you're not going to be able to do, you know, if you don't have the backing of your senior leadership, then you won't be able to get those opportunities to train up staff as best as you can. So it's really important that you target the staff who you really want. So if mm. you know, for example, that you have a nurture group in year seven, um, which might be a smaller group of students who need, who maybe struggle with reading more than the other students it's really important you target those teachers who are teaching that particular group and say look these are the barriers our students are facing this is what we need to be able to um, actually sort of um, you know this is what you need to be able to help them learn and this is the sort of things in terms of literacy in terms of phonics in terms of reading strategies that you really need to get to these particular students so yeah staff training is a really really difficult one i've been very fortunate mm. to lead staff training on vocabulary and reading um but as soon as it stops becoming a senior leadership priority you lose a lot of t opportunities that you otherwise would have had now earlier we talked about um teachers leaving the profession and how this in it's increasing and there are teachers that are looking to leave in the first five years, maybe even trainee or T ECTs before they even complete their training at ECT year. What are the top tips you would give to new teachers, new qualified teachers today in terms of classroom management and how to make the most of their teaching, teaching career? It's it's hard um, mm. to give advice to new teachers because you have to remember what it was like being a new teacher. And, you know, it, for me, it actually wasn't that long ago, but it does feel like a lifetime ago. Um, you know, I started teaching before the pandemic hit and since then education's changed wildly mm. and the experience has been ECTs as they're now called are different today to what it was but NQTs before you've got different training programs you've got different expectations you've got different paperwork etc what I'd say though the advice which sort of spans across generations for any new qualified teacher or ECT is first of all if you're in a school with a behaviour system, which 99% of schools do, but there are some which don't have behaviour systems, use the system, don't make up your own, don't, you know, be, you know, that, <laughs> the word which I hate, but is really important is fidelity. Um, ensuring that you stay faithful and true, true to a school's behaviour system for both positive recognition and, you know, reinforcement uh, in terms of changing negative behaviours. It's really important that you know the system and you use the system because if you don't use the same system as all of the other teachers and it might be because you're new to a school it might be because you're new to teaching you might not have got your head around it yet mm. the kids will suss you out and they'll think mm, we, we, we this person gives us a little bit more leeway so we can start to act up a little bit more the only way you get around that is by using the system and then if a senior leader or your line manager or somebody comes to you and say why are all of these students getting sanctions turn around and say well i'm using the school system and if they don't like that then just say well you know i'm i'm just i'm using what i have as part of the school's policies to be able to deal with what I have the challenges in front of me. And so if you don't like the fact that I'm using the system, then we've got a bit of a problem here. Um, so it's really important that new teachers use the systems that are available to them in their schools. The other thing I'd say in terms of linking sort of well-being is never take anything personally. 
if kids are acting out in your lessons, if kids are behaving negatively in your lessons, it's it's not a slight on you and your personal character. Um, and then they're not doing it because of you. And if there was another adult in your place, chances are they'd be exhibiting very similar behaviours. So mm. never take anything personally, because the moment you start to take negative behaviour personally is a moment when anxiety stress burnout etc really starts to hit home and we end up seeing people leaving profession so it's really hard and it's taken me years to be able to do this but sort of not taking those things personally is really really important in terms of looking after your well-being and disassociating your personal emotions from mm-hmm. teaching in that classroom. It's really, really hard. And some teachers are like, well, some teachers are far more sort of emotionally invested in a student's behaviour. Um, it's not because they care more, but it, you know, um, it's just really important, I think, just to sort of depersonalise those sorts of interactions when you are applying a behaviour system and just making in making it clear that you're challenging for behaviours and you're not challenging a particular student, but you're challenging for behaviours they're exhibiting. Um, so that's a really key one. So using the system, never taking anything personally. And, I mean, people say teaching is about building relationships, and it is, and relationships are number one, but it's not something that you can force. And the students know if you're trying to sort of build those relationships forcefully with them. Um and they sort of start to smell a rat. Um, and it's one of those things in teaching whereby once you've been at a school for a certain amount of time, it might be six months, it might be a year, it might be a couple of years, and the student, more and more students get to know you, those relationships build organically. Because word goes around and says, oh, such and such is a good teacher, or such and such is quite strict, or such and, you know, et cetera. And mm. <laughs> it's really difficult some teachers like I want the students to like me or I want the students to respect me or I want the students to fear me um depending on what type of teacher you are I wouldn't recommend the third one um, <laughs> therefore try to impose those relationships by force and it doesn't work it doesn't work because students are clever and they will see through that so mm. allow those relationships to build organically allow them to develop naturally over time and yes, there will be some students who don't like you. It's not slight on you as a person, because there are students who dislike every teacher. And I don't think there's a single teacher in a school anywhere in the country who hasn't had kids who dislike them. And we can't dislike students, and we shouldn't dislike students. Easier said than done. Um, Sometimes you look at a register and go, at least such and such isn't here today. And you shouldn't shouldn't do that as a teacher, but it's natural. And Mm. so allowing those relationships to build naturally and organically over time is really important. So my advice to new teachers is use the school systems, don't take anything personally, and let those relationships build organically, don't force them. Mm. And I think it's also about not wanting to please the students and show them that you're really nice and really kind and then you let the behavior management side sort of slip because I think that's really important I've seen that in schools before where staff aren't implementing the behavior policy and aren't following the sanctions because they want to look good in front of their students but what I've learned over the years is by sticking to that behavior policy and being fair and consistent you build up that respect with your students because they know where they stand with you and they trust you what you've just described there is very much short-term gain gain (laughs) um but long-term pain as a teacher mm-hmm. um where you're like i want the students to like me so i'm not i'm gonna be a little bit more relaxed with a behavior system i'm gonna allow them to do x and y even though other teachers don't there are teachers like that in every school whether you like it or not and my message to them would be you're undermining your colleagues who are being faithful to the school systems if you have a teacher there who isn't following the system for whatever reason because they think the kids are going to like them otherwise or because they've got sort of they've got that they might have positive relationships with those students and therefore think well if somebody's not quite doing the right thing i'll just let it slide or tackle it but not implement the system faithfully Whereas a teacher in another room who might not have those relationships built with those students yet, 
you know, is confronted the same, if they start to issue a warning or whatever it might be, and the kid turns around and says, but such and such in my previous lesson didn't do that, it undermines that teacher who's actually implementing that system faithfully. So mm. in terms of a fidelity to those systems, it's really important that as a school, you have a culture where every single teacher is following that system, because it's otherwise it's unfair on the teachers who are following the system if you have some teachers who are not. Mm, 100%. It, is, it can also affect the teacher a little bit. So I had a, I had a tutor group a very long time ago, year 12 tutor group, and they would wear their coats and earphones in lessons. And but I was following the pay policy and I was asking them to remove it at the start. Don't come into my classroom without with your coat on, with your earphones on. Remove them first, then come sit down. Um, or I'd, of course, they'd walk in without doing that and I'd remind them. But they would, they kind of developed this sort of hatred towards me because I was sticking to those, to the policy and they didn't like me because of it. Um, however, I had students who would say to them, well, no, that, that's Mrs. just doing her job. That, that's what we have to do in school. Yeah. So we have to follow the That's what she's doing. She's not doing anything against us. So I think over time, they sort of ease a bit more <laughs> and end up liking yeah. me. But initially, they didn't, they didn't like me at all. They really my, didn't like my me. Room, my so classroom gets really cold because the heating is mm, so temperamental. Yeah. <laughs> and what I sometimes do is, I, you know, the kids come in, we're in the room, and I might wait five minutes, mm -hmm. and then I'll go, yeah. <laughs> yeah. three people still have their coats on. Mm. We need to get them off now. And those, I haven't said anybody's name, so I haven't pointed at anybody. I haven't said, you, you, you need to take your coat off. I just said, three people still have their coats on. And that's all I say. And then they sort of look and they go, but it's cold. And I'm like, look at everybody else. But because my yeah. room sometimes gets so cold, if we're, you know, we've been in the minus figures sometimes, I recognise from being a human being that there are some students who might need a little bit of acclimatisation yes. yeah. in terms of let them sit, let them sit there with their coats on for a couple of minutes, but then don't let it, don't, don't let it go unchallenged by any means, because that's undermining mm. other teachers, but just knowing how to interact with them is so essential. Mm. And then if they refuse to take their coat off, use the systems that are available to you um and it's not about giving them leeway but it's just about sort of understanding that there are some extreme situations where there is extreme weather and ideally you'll get a message from your leadership team in the morning saying oh by the way it's really cold today it's minus four or something <laughs> so we're going to let kids keep their coats on mm. in the first lesson of the day because it's still warming up mm. and occasionally we get there and that's good and then form tutors can communicate that message um but yeah sometimes you've just got to you know you've got to ensure that you challenge things but that you do it in such a way which doesn't completely alienate the student. And that some people might listen to this and think, well, that's completely hypocritical compared to what he just said earlier about, you know, teachers um, who don't follow the same systems. It's really important that all teachers follow the same systems. It's important that they understand who the students are in front of them mm -hmm. and they yes. <laughs> apply those systems in a way that doesn't completely, that doesn't lead to whatever it might be next. Mm. Yeah, because it is, it's about disciplining students with dignity, isn't it? Not showing them up or embarrassing them or anything like that. It's about disciplining our students in a respectful yeah. way and maintaining that relationship with your students. And you're right. And there are times in the classroom where it's really cold. I remember during um, pandemic times when I had my windows and doors all open, my poor students were cold. <laughs> so in that sense, yeah, you have to be human and you have to allow yeah. them to get used to the climate, used to the environment in the classroom, 100%. So yeah. what do you think? Well, what is your favourite or most important topic on Teachers Talk Radio so far? Oh, my word. Well, given, <laughs> the, given the number of shows we've had <laughs> and the fact we've had a million downloads now, um, we've, had so, we've had so many topics on Teachers Talk Radio, it's really, really hard to keep mm. track of it. And what's really important to us, I suppose, at Teachers Talk Radio is we have hosts with so many different interests mm -hmm. that if you go to our website and search in the listen back search bar and search for a topic, chances are we've got a show there for you. Um, the big thing that we have at the moment is our collections. So collections on our website, um, ttradio.org, are 
packages of four shows all grouped around a particular topic and a particular theme so mm. we've got four shows for example on teaching maths we've got four shows for example on behavior for learning we've got four shows on ai and education we've got four shows on literacy we've got four shows on environment and sustainability and we're updating those all the time um, we've got one coming out i think soon on cpd and leading cpd so i think we have so many topics it's really hard to pick a favorite i'd say if i had to pick a favorite which i suppose you're asking me to do i would say it's probably the shows we have on careers because one of them's mine for a start um <laughs> when i talk to a couple of them um, careers professionals about the work that they do and how careers is so much more than te- talking about jobs um and that's the collection which had the most traction very early on in terms of the number of people who are actually viewing it compared to the other ones. Um, It picked up really more traction than I thought it would. I thought that more people would be interested in perhaps the behaviour collection or the attendance collection or the neurodiversity collection. But no, it's a careers and futures one. And it was picking up all of these clicks and people clicking on the shows and listening to them. And I was just thinking, Mm -hmm. wow, we've really got engagement on this one. So for our shows on careers and skills and thinking about the future, um, they've had a lot of traction. And so they'd be the ones that I'd urge people to go and check out because um, there's, yeah, there's loads of, there's loads of fantastic content and you can now search by theme on the collections page, but you can also look at all of our shows on Listen Back only yesterday evening. Um, we had Brandwyn Jeffries on. Brandwyn is the BBC's education editor, and she was talking about her work in the last year, being an education journalist, reporting on RAC, uh, reporting on Ruth Perry, reporting now um, on the story which has been in the news at this time of recording, which is um, PFI schools and the increased costs with PFI contracts. And it was really interesting listening to her talk about the duty of care a journalist must have for people they're talking talking to and you know the BBC's guidelines and Samaritan's guidelines on reporting on suicide which unfortunately um, we you know we know um, was a contributing factor in Greek for Reef Parry the office inspection that led to her tragic death um, so we, we have all sorts of amazing topics um, new shows every single day and search by topic on the collections page my particular favorite is careers and futures <laughs> now you mentioned AI earlier what is your opinion on AI in teaching, in education. I I always, look, as a teacher, my, one of my mantras is, if you don't know enough about something, don't say anything. Mm. (laughs) I don't know enough about AI. This is my thing. And I'd love to know more, but my time as a teacher is limited. And Mm. so I might use things like ChatGPT to provide summaries of things for me, to condense longer things into short summaries um, to make some comprehension questions based on a piece of text to do things like that but I don't know enough about AI to be able to use it even more effectively my big thing though is students are sitting exams which are paper-based and they you know they can't use AI in exams Mm -hmm. so if they're trying to basically take shortcuts in their homework or in work that we're doing in class using AI, um, it could come back to bite them in the real thing, so to speak, in the real GCSEs and the real Mm. Um, A-levels. I have a way, I'm not quite sure how, of reading something and being able to go, that's been produced by AI. And that I, I worry if I'm going to lose that knack as AI becomes more and more sophisticated. But we're in a really difficult position as a profession with AI, whereby generative AI and other platforms are advancing so quickly and the teaching professionals are unable to keep up with it. And mm. it's one of the big challenges that education um, faces in terms of the fact that students are sitting summative assessments where they don't have access to um, AI at all, um, quite rightly, and yet they're mm. going to be using it much, much more. And not enough teachers know know enough about it to be able to think very hard about the strengths and the limitations of the software. Oh. So for me, with AI, listen to the shows; they're really interesting. <laughs> uh, I don't know enough about it though, so it's very hard mm. for me to sort of see where we're going with it without that knowledge. Of course, yeah. 
And you mentioned about exams, actually. So as a literacy coordinator, what are your thoughts or feelings on schools that are giving laptops? So, for example, my old school gives a Chromebook to every single student so they can access, they can complete the work in classrooms on their Chromebook, access everything in Google Classroom, which is amazing in terms of technology. But in terms of written English, like what sort of impact is that going to have on our students that sit down and do written exams? We're going to see in about six years' time, we're mm. going to see all... GCSEs and all A-levels being available to be done online. Mm -hmm. That's the direction of travel we're in. We've got first, I think, got trial, Pearson are doing a trial with English language at GCSE um, with online exams. So that's the direction of travel we're going in. However, schools do not have the infrastructure to be able to give every single student um, a device and then being able to do that. Now, some schools are fortunate enough to be able to do that. Some schools have a bring your own device policy um, where this is possible, but in a school with a thousand students is a huge expense. And mm. it's not, and so I worry that with our move towards online exams, which looks like it's going to happen um, in five or six years, that the disadvantage gap is going to widen even further because there are students who are used to using laptops and computers and devices every single day. There are some students who might not have a computer at home and might not have as equitable access to this. So mm, with any, any, any move towards greater technology and use of technology in education, the question has to be, how do we ensure that this technology is available to every student regardless of their background the answer is money and schools don't have enough mm -hmm. of it no they don't unfortunately and that's therefore then has an impact on the students in terms of their learning and and the resources that they're that are made available to those students in school so for example i did a podcast episode on teachers funding their own resources in classrooms buying laminators and pouches and buying things for their own classroom because the schools just can't afford to give it to them. And that's then having an impact on the students when teachers aren't able to provide the resources for their students. Mm. Teacher, you know, teachers want to do the best job possible. Mm. And sometimes it means that teachers feel as though there's no option but to spend their mm -hmm. own money on providing resources for students and what a sad situation that is course, and yeah. it speaks to a history of uh, underfunding um and schools who are struggling with budgets it's but you know every single head teacher we've spoken to on teachers talk radio says the biggest challenge we've had is understanding how schools budget because they would have been in charge of budgets for their own departments or whatever but to actually be in charge of a whole school's budget. Yes, they might have support from a local authority for, or from a trust or from a um, operations officer, but being the head teacher looking at the budget and thinking, well, actually we can't afford X, we can't afford Y, it's something which a deputy headship, an NPQH, it doesn't prepare them for it. And it's the biggest challenge for a head teacher moving into that, looking at the financial side mm. of budgeting for a school with however many however much money being spent on staff salaries and however much money being spent on everything else as well um a huge challenge and we don't know what the next pay rise is going to be for teachers and how much of it's going to be funded by from existing schools budgets and how much of it's going to come from government but the picture on the ground is it doesn't look like it's going to be enough and we might possibly see more industrial action in the summer mm. Thank you for tuning in with us today. I hope you gained value from our episode and please don't forget to leave a review and hit follow so you never miss an episode. Until next time, keep on thriving and keep on changing young lives.